0: Hello and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for nearly a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify boil down and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working, or not working, for you. On this episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that I hold near and dear to my attorney heart. We're going to talk law. More specifically, we're going to be talking about public health law, a field of law involving the government's legal authorities and duties to ensure the conditions for people to be healthy. Now, prior to 2020, a year that will undoubtedly live in infamy, public health laws kind of operated in the background. As a theater nerd, I liken them to the stage manager for a musical. That's the person who rarely gets the applause, but is the one making sure that all the elements of a show run smoothly. The lights, the set, the costumes, the music, even the lines the actors say. Now, some examples of public health laws are requirements for fluoride in our water, food safety guidelines for restaurants, or zoning laws that ensure that a nuclear power plant doesn't set up shop on the lot next to your home. In the year 2020, however, public health laws have moved from off stage to center stage and in the spotlight. And Americans are discovering the extent of the power that the government has when there's a public health emergency like the coronavirus pandemic. And it has been the state's not the federal government, that have been in the starring role when it comes to exercising public health authority, compelling quarantine and isolation of individuals, restricting operations or temporarily closing bars, restaurants, and gyms, and issuing statewide mask mandates and stay-at-home orders. Now, this has been met by many Americans with protest, outright refusal, and some, including a group of Arkansas legislators, have filed lawsuits challenging state public health directives. There is no doubt that there is a tension between individual liberties and state directives. And at times, there has been a tension between aggressive state agencies to control the spread of the virus and the federal government, primarily the president. So to help us better understand these tensions and to unwalk things for us, we have as our guest a fellow attorney who is the Associate Dean for Student and Alumni Affairs and an Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences College of Public Health, where he teaches public health law. He has also worked in the clinical space as a nurse and was formerly with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement as the Senior Advisor for Law and Legal Policy. Kevin, good to see you and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Counselor. I am very (laughs) glad to be here and You may have forgotten after all these years, but I actually was the one who, along with one of my colleagues, hired you at the Arkansas Center for Health (laughs) Improvement, probably one of the single best decisions I ever made while I was there. I am very glad that you made that decision, and uh, thank you for the
0: compliments. Now, before we get started on our topic, tell me a little bit about uh, what you enjoy so much about the work that you do at the College of Public Health.
1: I am your prototypical wonk. I have the best job in the world. I know you think you do, your (laughs) colleagues do. As it turns out, Counselor, I do. I have the best job. I would undertake the activities that I do for nothing. Now, please don't tell my dean that, my department chair. We're going to keep that quiet. (laughs) Yes, I don't want them listening to this. But it's an incredible job. I get to translate very sometimes complex concepts For people who have no idea of the import of them, I am the sole attorney with a primary appointment there, uh, and I get to work with students of all backgrounds in helping them understand the law and public health law and how essential it is to the uh, activities of our everyday lives. Right, right.
0: Uh, And I, I get the chance to, on occasion, come and teach a little bit as well. At the College of Public Health, and I, I share your enjoyment for for that role.
1: Although you get to do it all the time, all the time. I'm now I think up to six courses a year, in wow. addition to all of my administrative duties, way beyond my original uh, letter of appointment. But that's okay. I love what I get to do. Great, great. I'm sure your students enjoy it as well. Uh, depends on when you ask them what grade they received and and <laughs> how far past graduation. Right, right. So, switching to a more personal note, what do you do when you're not at work? Well, I truly am a wonk, Craig. Never yeah. off work. Craig. I really, I really am never off work. The type of activities I do professionally are what I enjoy. I uh, love uh, uh, current events, politics, the news, reading. Uh, you know, probably the thing that I do the most that. Doesn't directly involve my work is spending time with my two granddaughters. The two, again, I'm sorry, but it turns out I have the two smartest, <laughs> most beautiful, uh, just incredible granddaughters uh, who ha- actually hate what I do because I show slides of them during all of my courses. I, I'm sure they're thoroughly in- embarrassed. Oh, they they hate it. They hate. They'll hate this <laughs> when they hear themselves being mentioned. All right, so I ask this of, uh, of all our wonky guests, and I
0: know that you're a big music fan, and we share some similar interests. So what would you say is
1: your theme song? That's a hard one. If you ask me what's my favorite song, that can differ hour by hour, and I am incredibly uh, cross-genre when it yeah. comes to... My playlist includes alternative, rap, opera, yeah. classical, on and on. But if I had to pick just one or two, I would say something that it could be a theme song would be "Public Enemies Fight, Fight, Fight the Power." A great, great song, and I, I love it. Uh, if you, since this isn't on video, your listeners can't actually see how old I am, and people think, "Wow, that guy likes rap." Absolutely, and 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 it's still meaningful particularly in the times that we're living in now. I listened to it again just this morning in preparation for this. Um, And it is. And you like with all rap songs, you've got to listen to the lyrics. And and Fight the Power is more than just a really cool song with a great driving beat. Um, It talks about the importance of education and how an uninformed people are a people that are ripe for being, you know, uh, just told what to do right. without input. Um, I also like salt and pepper's, uh Let's Talk About Sex, but that's probably not as appropriately <laughs> reflective of a theme song. So let's stick with the but, first one. But a great one.
0: public health theme, right? Yeah. Uh,
1: it could be. <laughs> All it, right. it definitely could be. <laughs> All
0: right. So let's get down to business. Uh, I mentioned the power of the states when natural disasters or public health emergencies happen earlier. So where do states get their public health authority, and why does it lie with the states rather than the federal government?
1: This is an incredibly important and somewhat artifactual uh, uh, aspect of U.S. history. After the Revolution, we had 13 separate countries. The former colonies didn't all of a sudden come into uh, this pack where, oh, we're no longer with Great Britain as colonies. Now we're the United States. For a period of time, they were 13 separate countries, the country of New York, the country mm-hmm. of Virginia, etc. Well, as 13 countries, as a country, they had all the powers of a country, which include the power to, in effect, coerce individuals into actions. In particular, they had, as a country, two types of authority, police power authority and parents' patriae authority. Police power authority is that authority that countries and states Mm -hmm. have to protect the public's health, welfare, safety, and morals. I mean, that truly is public health, isn't it? The other type of authority that countries and states have is what's referred to as parents' patriae authority, that authority that states have to act as a parent for those who cannot take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. So those 13 countries have that power in, in and of themselves. They come together. Constitution is drafted. They create this new federal government. And they expressly cede some authorities to the, this new U.S. or federal government. The power to declare war. The power to mint money the power to regulate interstate commerce, the power to enter into treaties with foreign nations. No states can do that. They expressly granted these powers to the federal government. What was not in there was that police power authority and parents' patriae authority. They reserved that to themselves through effect of the 10th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is nothing in the U.S. Constitution that expressly says, okay, federal government, you have the power to protect public health, to intervene uh, against individuals in order to improve and maintain public health. It stays at the state level, right? Now, does that mean that there's no federal authority to uh, enter into and act in the public health arena? Oh, there's an incredible amount, but it's all express either through a congressional law through an executive order that's very specific. But those broad powers to uh, 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 act within the public health arena, that lives at the states. Yeah, That's mm-hmm. why it's so important. And it's unique in the globe in terms of, of types of governments. It's, it's a unique setup that we have here. So I've heard
0: you say that public health powers are so broad that the government could pretty much do anything short of killing someone. <laughs> And a court would find it constitutional.
1: But we know there are some limits on what the government can do, right? There are limits. Just as public health power is incredibly broad, and while you could say that the quote of mine you know, has a little bit of hyperbole, <laughs> I stand behind it. But there are limits. The power that the state governments have to protect the public's health is not without limits. The first set of limits we go to are the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, the so-called Bill of Rights. Um, The great Professor Larry Gostein, who is kind of one of the modern fathers of public health law and the author of the textbook I use, and kind of an all-around really great guy. I had the chance to meet him once, and I was was just (laughs) like a a groupie at a rock concert. Um, But that's another story. Uh, We go to the Constitution. And we see there are limits to how far the government can act. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of assembly. We have freedom of religion, free exercise and establishment of a religion. We have protection against the government uh, uh, undertaking unreasonable searches and seizures of our homes and our persons and our papers. There is this dynamic balance and tension between how far the government can go, you know, what it's authorized to do, and how far it can go. So the power is not unlimited. It's incredibly broad. And in particular, it's broad during emergencies. Uh, But the power is not unlimited. By the same token, Craig, it's so important to point out, those protections that individuals have against government authority are not unlimited. It's, it's always, again, it's kind of like a teeter-totter, you know, think about that playground teeter-totter that, that we all played on. Well, you did. No one would play with me when I was a kid, but that's okay. Uh, You know, as one goes up one side of that teeter-totter, the, you know, the public's uh, uh, health, uh, you know, government actions to protect the public, well, that comes about through a reduction in individual rights and freedoms. Sure. It has to. Mm-hmm. Similarly, as individual rights and freedoms expand, the public's health is put at risk. Mm-hmm. I use as an example in my class um, the speed limit law out here on Markham, 25 miles an hour, right? By the way, that's a public health law. Right. Your examples that you opened with were great, but too narrow, I would maintain. Because all law is public health law. Just as all health is public health, all law is public health law. So that is a restriction on our individual right of movement. Mm -hmm. But it protects the public's health. We could remove that law. We could have no speed limit laws and just drive like bats out of hell. We'd have a lot more harm. But (laughs) a whole lot more harm. Where we come down on this you know really depends on the issue depends on the times depends on the will of the people and the nature of 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 the public health threat right and when those and when those individual
0: civil liberties and the fundamental rights are infringed upon courts will look at that with such a high degree of scrutiny and ensure that the that the goals of the government are compelling and ensure that whatever they're restricting
1: um is narrowly tailored to meet that goal right Indeed, so uh, that when it comes to fundamental rights and freedoms, such as those rights that we have in the Bill of Rights, uh, such as you know, fundamental characteristics, race, um, uh, freedom of religion, et cetera, the government may be able to restrict those. But in those situations, the court is going to take. A very careful examination, indeed, apply what's referred to as strict scrutiny. Government better have a darn good reason for acting in a discriminatory manner. Right. Which, by the way, is an important point. The government discriminates every day. That's what laws do. Yeah. I get to qualify for Medicare here in just a few short years, again, alluding to my advancing age. I definitely do not. And our host is is (laughs) decades away from that. That's discrimination. right? But in this case, it's a permissible discrimination. But if, if the government were to say only Caucasians qualify for Medicare and members of other racial groups do not, that would yeah. be an impermissible discrimination. I, I like to tell my students when we talk about this that the court would give that the stink eye. Uh yes, and uh, indeed that's a legal term of art uh, that I think uh, Judge Brandeis once used in a in a, in a holding. So, uh, what are
0: what are a couple of your favorite court cases throughout history that might help us better understand the
1: importance of our public
0: health laws today?
1: You know, Craig, there are dozens. However, <laughs> there are two that come immediately to mind. And one of which I like, one of which I don't, but both are uh, very important. Um, The first is Jacobson v. Massachusetts, a case that in 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court um, looked at the issue of immunizations. This may ring uh, familiar uh, for our listeners uh, in 2020. Um, In this case, Uh, The United States, and in particular coastal areas, were faced with uh, uh, a smallpox epidemic. The city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, orders, which is on the coast, eastern seaboard, uh, passes a law that says anyone coming into town, any residents, any uh, new travelers must take the smallpox vaccination. Well, the the Reverend Henning Jacobson (laughs) says no. Uh, He says these vaccines are harmful. Uh, They 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 can cause other side effects. Uh, He was part of a vaccine resistance movement again, like what we see today, what we see today. And what's really well, there are a number of great things about this case. When you look at pictures of of Reverend Jacobson, when he's in his like early 30s, he looks exactly like a young Matthew McConaughey. It's amazing. (laughs) He was a rabble rouser. The ladies must have loved him when he would be you know, talking on the, the the square in the city of Cambridge. He, would, he wouldn't say, all right, all right, all right. I don't know he, if now, he did yeah. that. He, he was Swiss, right? I think he was... Uh, well, or Danish, Danish, I believe. Danish, yeah. Dan-
0: but, but still... He would not have had a Texas drawl, I'm sure.
1: No, he probably would not. <laughs> um, but again, must have been a babe magnet. Well, he says, no, I won't. The city of Cambridge says, we're fining you five bucks. Well, I'm not paying that either. It goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now at the time, this could have gone in either direction. Uh, The great Justice Harlan, in writing for the majority, uh, laid out what became public health Mm -hmm. for the the next 115 years. He said, yes, it is within the authority of government to coerce individuals to do things they normally would not wish to in order to protect the public's health. Because remember, they ordered this vaccine not only to protect individuals themselves, but to protect the general public. The court said yes, that is a permissible exercise of police power authority. However, they said there's a limit to that mm-hmm. exercise. You can only go so far. You could not, for example, if you knew that the vaccine would kill or, or even have a, a significant risk of harming someone, still order them to take that. Hence. My quote. Um, so they, in one decision, laid out what became the guiding sentinel case, not only for public health but indeed the way our society has worked mm-hmm. from here on out. We have the field of public health because of Jacobson. Right, sentinel case. Yeah, that has to be my first one. Yeah. My second one is one. So I agree with the court in Jacobson. Good because that's
0: still precedent, right?
1: It is very, very, and indeed, <laughs> it's it's cited maybe one of the most cited yeah. cases. Other than there's probably a few others, but um, yes, it's right up there. The other one is a case called Deshaney v. Winnebago County. This is a case that I, I guess, arrogantly or presumptively, presumptuously, think the Supreme Court got wrong. In Deshaney v. Winnebago County, a young boy. Um, Joshua DeShaney was in and out of uh, government uh, care uh, custody for a number of years because his parents just couldn't get it together. Mom and dad were both substance abusers. They both drank. They were in and out of the penal system. And he uh, was a ward of the state and then would be given back uh, to the parents. Mom, at one point, leaves the state Uh, the Winnebago County Department of Human Services obviously is aware of this. They're aware of the problems that are going on. There's a petition to remove young Joshua permanently from dad's custody. Dad's been back um, um, in jail again and comes out. And for different reasons, the social workers say, no, we're going to let Joshua go back. Dad goes off on a bender one day, and there's been a long history of Dad physically abusing Mm -hmm. Joshua and his siblings. But this time he goes too far, and he beats Joshua for some minor offense so severely that Joshua goes into a permanent vegetative coma. Mm. And... Pictures of Joshua at the time prior to this show this smiling little toe-headed boy who really had a great personality. Everybody at the Winnebago County DHS just loved him. And Joshua is finally seized from dad, and he dies. Mm -hmm. And those representing Joshua sue Winnebago County, and say, "You knew this, you knew it was going on. Why didn't you keep Joshua permanently from this man, this evil, evil person and the court in Deshaney uh then Chief Justice Rehnquist held that it was not the state's affirmative duty to protect Joshua from public. Or from violence from an individual. and by extension, Craig, what Deshaney V Winnebago County meant was the state the state government doesn't have an affirmative duty to protect the public's health. when I when I teach this case to my students, it's so counterintuitive yeah. wait wait, what are you saying? Just that that the state has discretion to decide, whether it will protect individuals or not. Yeah. Now, obviously, this statement simplifies things, and there are lots of other laws and rules and regs that apply here. But to this day this this bothers me. Yeah. Um, the great, great, great Justice Blackman in writing for the minority starts out his holding with the statement, poor Joshua. We failed him. We failed this little boy. We had the chance to to rescue Joshua and keep him safe. And the government chose not to. It bothers me. Yeah. It bothered me then. It bothers me now. There are good reasons perhaps to not place that affirmative duty on the government, but it, it has always felt like there's a better way that we could do that. Yeah.
0: So so there are currently states, right, taking this what is clearly not an obligation under under the DeShaney case, but they feel an obligation, right? So they're taking it very seriously. They're they're taking a lot of aggressive actions. And I want to talk a little bit about um the lawsuit that's been filed by a group of legislators here in Arkansas against the Secretary of Health and the Governor. That are challenging the validity of the public health directives. That um, you know, we can say most of which are an attempt to protect the public's health. Right? Um, what is what
1: is the basis of the legislator's lawsuit? So Arkansas was a little bit later to the game in terms of mask mandates and other restrictions. And indeed, unlike a number of states, Arkansas, uh, along with several other states has never shut down the state entirely. Mm-hmm. The the governor has not, nor the Secretary of Health. In July, however, uh, in recognition of the uh, then increasing uh, number of uh, coronavirus cases, Governor Hutchinson issued a mask mandate. He also, uh, for the first time,
0: yeah.
1: he also continued uh, the emergency declaration that he had started in the spring, mm-hmm and continued to have some restrictions on uh, business operations, uh, social gatherings, etc. Well, this caused uh, a group of 18 Arkansas state legislators to bring a suit, uh, in effect stating, Governor, you have exceeded your authority, and indeed, not only have you exceeded your authority as the head of the executive branch, you and um, Secretary of Health, then Smith, and now uh, Romero, uh, but you're stepping on our feet. This type of activity that you've done, these executive orders uh, and mandates, they're supposed to pass legislative review. And, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Administrative Procedures Act and other pieces of legislation require you to do that. As such, we petition the court to declare all of those uh, actions that you've taken uh, in the event or face of this public health emergency to be null and void. And so they brought suit uh, the first part of September.
0: Right. And the, and it's been heard in, I think it's Judge Wendell Griffin's court here in Pulaski County. And what it did, what was the outcome of
1: that? Well, Judge Griffin uh, gave a uh, pretty uh, swift and sure uh declaration that the legislators were, again, to use a legal term of art, dead wrong in what they (laughs) thought. Uh, A number of of kind of interesting arguments. Um, But as it turns out, and uh, Judge Griffin pointed this out uh, in his holding, he said, not only is it within the governor's authority uh, as the governor, as the head of the executive branch, legislators, you actually reaffirmed that authority just in 2019. Indeed, you specifically said, and I find this a fascinating and in some ways ironic uh, part of the decision, you granted the government authority to act in the event there was an an emergency related to a novel coronavirus. (laughs) Well, COVID-19, a novel coronavirus. That's what we have in our hands. Just exactly what we have. And so he dismissed the suit. Um, The governor uh, expressed his pleasure. And, of course, we continue today with some restrictions, which is appropriate because there are those that are maintaining that we in Arkansas are entering into, if not a full-blown second wave, perhaps even a third wave of coronavirus cases. So. So,
0: given this perceived slight by this group of legislators, I think there's been some talk that um, at least some Arkansas legislators might seek to change the power dynamic and strip the governor of some of the public health authority that he that he has now.
1: What would be your advice to them if they decide to to pursue this action? It is definitely within their authority as legislators. Uh, to make those types of modifications, and it's likely that the court would defer to them if they did. Courts generally are deferential to legislative actions. They're the voice of the people. They're directly elected. Um, However, I think it would be a mistake to blindly go in and say, every time that there's an emergency, anything that the governor wishes to do must be heard and reviewed through the legislative process. By its very definition, an emergency oftentimes requires rapid action. Yeah. Now, that said, is it appropriate for our legislative committees and and the Arkansas General Assembly as a whole to review what happens in the governor's? Office? Absolutely. I want, as an N of one, I want that type of... of uh, uh, kind of interlocking uh, balance of power between the three branches of government. But the time to do that is after the fact. If there's an emergency that requires swift and sure action to re- protect the public's health, then that must occur swiftly and surely. You
0: have to move with all deliberate
1: speed. Right? All deliberate and due speed. Otherwise, we place the public's health at, yeah. depending on the threat, perhaps an incredibly serious risk. That's why it's so important on the front end. Whoever we put into office, whether it be in the governor's office, uh, a legislative representative uh, in Arkansas into our elected judiciary, it's important. We as a public need to be thoughtful about that.
0: So I think we're all very hopeful that a vaccine will be on the short horizon. And uh, I think there's been some worry among some Americans that when a COVID-19 vaccine is available, the government might actually mandate the vaccination. Is that worry completely unfounded?
1: No, that worry is exactly on point. I think not only will the government mandate a vaccine, I think it should. We're subject to all sorts of vaccine mandates right now for your child to attend school, they must show proof that they have uh, received or are up to date on the schedule of childhood immunizations and vaccinations. Vaccines are probably the single most important, beneficial, cost-effective public health tool ever developed. At this point, they cost pennies per dose, and the rate of adverse reactions is incredibly low. And as we saw going all the way back to Jacobson, it is within the government's authority to mandate vaccinations. They so your question was, should people worry that the government will mandate vaccines? I'll be worried if they don't yeah. do that. And I think we have in the US a very very rigorous process For making sure that vaccines are developed safely and efficiently. Just this morning, I was speaking with um, a physician who is a member of the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, plays a senior role. He's optimistic that we'll have something in place, you know, sometime over the next several months. Now it's going to take a while to roll it out, but you know, the people that we have overseeing this process are incredibly knowledgeable and well-trained, and cautious. So you believe do you, do you think there will be no exceptions whatsoever? Oh, Overly- I think there will be exceptions. Okay. Remember what Jacobson told right. us, that if there is a medical reason that uh, uh, someone shouldn't take a vaccine, then the government cannot coerce or make them take that. When it comes to vaccinations, there are two other types of exemptions. States can, uh, if they mandate a vaccine, they must have a medical exemption, a bypass written into the law. They, at their discretion, can have two other types of exemptions. One, if a person has religious uh, objections to the vaccine, they may be able to opt out. The other is if they have a philosophical objection to the vaccine. Now at present, Arkansas has all three types of right. those exemptions right. um, in place for school-based immunization mandates. Uh, it may follow that path. Indeed, I would predict they probably will when it comes to a coronavirus vaccine. Interestingly, there are states uh, four or five now that, when they when it comes to vaccine laws for children, only have the medical. Mm-hmm. exemption. The nearest to us is Mississippi, right, of all states. Uh, if, you, if you can show that your child will suffer uh, medical harm, physical harm, as a result of a the vaccine, they don't have to take it. But they don't allow philosophical or religious. So there will be, at a minimum, the medical, and it will be the legislature, in concert with the governor, who will determine whether there will be uh, the other two types of available exemptions uh, afforded to individuals, but I think definitely yeah. and, for, and if for some reason, Counselor, there is not uh, a mandate to take this, I encourage everybody to take it. Sure. I, I'll be first in line, I assure you. Well, Kevin and I have uh, really
0: enjoyed having you on the show. It's always great talking law with you and you. Uh, glad to have you back anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Walks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System, for allowing us to use their studio to record our podcast. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider putting on our list to cover in the next few months, please email us at achi at ACHI.net. Thanks for listening.